Welcome to Animals to the Max. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. This show is about animals and the people who dedicate their lives to them. And welcome everybody to another episode of Animals to the Max. How is everybody doing all around the world? As always, thank you to every single one of you who listen to the show. I'm Corbin Maxey. I am your host. Folks, we are on a roll. It is season three. And... You know, I, I, I'll i tell you what, I absolutely love this organization that we are highlighting today. So I'm just going to cut right to the chase. We are highlighting Working Dogs for Conservation. And it is a one-of-a-kind organization where they basically take shelter dogs and train them to help with wildlife conservation, to detect poaching, to detect ivory, to detect other, you know, things regarding wildlife conservation, including invasive species. It's really incredible what they have trained these dogs to do. And on the show, we have Kayla Fratt, and she is the communications and outreach coordinator for Working Dogs for Conservation. And she's so passionate, you know, for what she does. And she gives, you know, a little backstory. And I will tell you what, her backstory is very inspirational because, you know, I mean, yes, she is the communications and outreach coordinator, but it wasn't just like she comes strictly from a communications background. She actually comes from a biology background. And, you know, you'll hear, you know, during her story about, you know, growing up in kind of the middle of nowhere. We actually have very similar things. We grew up both in the middle of nowhere and we both raised pigeons. So we both are self-proclaimed weirdos. So she's super fun. I love talking to her about this, uh, you know, conservation organization. But back on to, this organization, you're just going to find out what these amazing people are doing and what these amazing dogs are doing to help save wild animals and wild habitats. And it's really, really mind blowing. It really is. It's like this crazy story of like taking a dog from a shelter, a dog that more than likely would be euthanized and training it to, you know, just help wildlife and stop wildlife trafficking. It's just incredible. And I know you guys are going to absolutely love it. Before we get started with the show, as always, make sure to subscribe to the show and leave a rating and review. As always, if you do leave a new review on iTunes, I will give you a shout out, a personal shout out with one of the animals on my Instagram stories. It was so funny. I was doing a shout out a few weeks ago and my wife saw it and she got mad at me. I was doing a, uh, oh goodness, I was doing a shout out with one of our Burmese pythons named Buddy. He's around 10 and a half feet. He's a little iffy, meaning like he doesn't bite or anything, but he's not the most, I don't know, like I would never let or use Buddy for like hands-on program. So I'm usually typically the only one who holds Buddy and I had Buddy. He was out of his enclosure. Buddy was fine, but I was giving a shout out to somebody and I had Buddy around my neck. My wife's like, what are you doing? Like get a little ball python. Why are you giving shout outs with Buddy the Burmese python? I'm like, babe, it's fine. Anyway, so listen to this. I risk my life. That is true for shout outs. Um, that's kind of a joke, but seriously, I, uh, I absolutely love when you leave a review because I will uh, give you a shout out on the show and it really helps get our podcast out there. And I know some of you have emailed me and said you've had issues with iTunes. Um, yeah, just try again. I mean, that's my best advice. Uh, yeah, I, the iTunes people are kind of hard to get a hold of, but doing that once again, gets our show out there. And we are currently in the top 100 science podcasts. It is all because of of you. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's amazing feeling doing that going into season three. So with that said, let's get to our interview. I hope you enjoy our podcast today. We have Kayla from Working Dogs for Conservation. We are live. All right. Oh my gosh. Kayla, thank you so much for doing this. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, I'm super excited to be here. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what, I was reading the National Geographic a few weeks ago and came across a mention of your organization regarding the Cross River Gorilla and your organization, that's fine, that actually worked out perfectly, uh, Working Dogs for Conservation. And I was like, what is this organization? And I literally had to learn more. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And that Cross River Gorilla study that we did, um, it was a while back, but it's just absolutely amazing stuff. And I mean, I'm obviously biased, but I think I have one of the world's coolest jobs and we do just really fab- fabulous, super cool work. Yeah, well, tell my listeners a little bit about the organization and what your job entails. What do you do? Yeah, so the organization, basically, we were we were founded in 2000 um, by four conservation biologists who are all kind of running into the same problem of trying to figure out how to gather data um, from these really hard to find species. 
Um, and right around in the late 1990s, fecal DNA kind of came on the scene. So if you found the scat of an animal, you could actually get DNA information from that. Previous to that, that wasn't really possible. So if you wanted to get hormone information or you know, even know what sex an animal was, you needed to actually find that physical animal and get a blood sample. Um, or you know, sometimes hair traps or something like that can work. So anyway, they were running into these problems where they're spending buckets of money sometimes doing things that are potentially really stressful for the animals, you know, like chasing them down with a helicopter and blow darting them or something. Uh Um, And just not getting as much data as they wanted. Um, And several of the the founders had a history with dog training. And um, I don't quite know exactly where the idea hit them, but at some point one of them must have, you know, been looking at search and rescue teams or narcotics teams and kind of put two and two together. Um, So, 19 years later, we're now one of the world's largest conservation detection dog organizations. We've got about 35 different dogs um, that are within the umbrella of the organization and then, you know, hundreds of handlers that we've trained worldwide. Um, And we've expanded from we don't just do like scat of endangered species. Mm -hmm. We now also have dogs that are trained to find invasive plants, invasive mussels, um, wildlife crime. So we've done quite a bit of work with anti-poaching units, Customs and Border Patrol, that sort of thing. Um, you know, everything from ivory to snow leopard scat to, you know, boat inspections here in the United States. Um, and what we do now is we find these really, really ball crazy high energy rescue dogs that generally are pretty bad pets. Okay. You know, there's a sort of dog that are not that is not OK with just a couple 20 minute walks around the neighborhood and then maybe a hike on the weekend. These are dogs who need to go, 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 go. Mm-hmm. They end up in the shelter for that reason, and then we put them to work doing this, and they, you know, they've got enough energy that they can actually keep up with the sort of craziness that we um, ask of them. Wow, what an incredible yeah. program! I'm not just blowing smoke. And by the way, that was amazing. Yeah. You covered everything. I guess the interview's over. No, I'm kidding. No, you. It's <laughs> like my job. I know. Yeah, I, my job is I'm communications and outreach, so I'm oh, the one. God, who gets you're great. <laughs> about everything we do um so i've got i've got to quit the spiel at this point no you're fine that was amazing i loved it yeah so you are the communications manager did you always want to work with animals or is that like, tell uh, us how you land this job because i know listeners are like how did this gal land this awesome job yeah i mean i've got the long version of the story and the short version of the story what do you want um, let, let's hear the long this is a podcast sure. no one's gonna cut us yeah off. yeah we got time we can always you know yeah we've Heck got yeah. time so um yeah, plenty of time so i grew up on a farm in northern wisconsin um and i was like 15 miles outside of a town of six thousand. so like really middle of nowhere yeah. um and i was a kid who um you know, I, I think I'm, I'm a definitely an extrovert and it was a hard place to grow up as an extrovert. So I think I kind of like latched on to animals, <laughs> honestly. Um, and, you know, as a kid, like I did, I was really involved in 4-H. So for those of you who don't know, 4-H is kind of like a youth development agricultural program. Mm. Um, you know, they do everything from like horse training to, you know, you breed the biggest pig and then you show them at the county fair. And it's all about leadership and development. It's, it's, it's a fabulous program. And um I did it quite a bit with them. You know, I showed chickens and rabbits. I got into homing pigeons in oh, middle school. I did so. too. Yeah. Oh my God. Actually. I was such a weird kid. Oh my God. And I grew up in the middle of nowhere too, in Roby Creek, Idaho, like population oh four. God, I swear yeah. to God. Holy crap. Okay. Wait, hold on. Now I actually had tumbler, yeah. tumbler pigeons. Well, I always wanted tumblers and I never, I didn't find anyone near me who could, who'd sold them. Yeah, here's the deal though. When I was a kid, I probably was actually a little younger. I was like nine or 10. I was too scared to actually like release my pigeons. I just like had them inside. <laughs> I was like, I don't want you guys to go. So I never, yeah, I never let them go. But did you actually like let the homing pigeons go and they came yeah, back? Yeah. Mm. I mean, I never got up to like, cause the races are often like hundred to 500 mile races. Oh my God. Um, my birds, I think the longest I ever trained them to fly were like 60 miles. Um, wow. but I, I mean, and the cool thing with them is, I mean, it's so instinctive. Like, I mean, it sounds really impressive, but in retrospect, like, I mean, you let them go and they come back and you just kind of gradually build up that distance and is- just keep building up their muscles and, are homing you know. pigeon racing? Is that like a big thing in Wisconsin? Are you? <laughs> I'm dying God, right I, now. I'm like, like I, where I got this idea. Like I, I don't know how I heard about this. Ah. My parents. I. This is like total tangent, but um. Oh yeah. I got it in my head that I wanted homing pigeons, and I asked my parents, and they said, "You know what? Fine. If you can find someone who will sell you 
a bleeping homing pigeon, you can have a homing pigeon. <laughs> and I walked into the local pet store, which unfortunately has since um, closed down. And I asked, you know, I was like, I know you guys don't sell them, but you know, any connections? And the woman was like, oh my gosh, yeah, my dad has a flock of like 50. He's actually looking to downsize. And this guy hooked me up with like 10 birds for free. Like the first place I went and asked, they were just like, oh yeah, here, have 10. Oh, that's um, awesome. Oh my gosh, yeah. how cool. I know that was such a side tangent about pigeons, but you know, it was hard to find homes for them. I remember, um, did you find homes for yours eventually? Yeah, yeah. I, well, honestly, um, unfortunately, I think I, when I left for college, um, I left them with my dad and um, we had a really unfortunate incident with a weasel, I think, <gasps> that offed most of them. Oh God, um, yeah. And I, have, I had like six or eight at that point. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, because we, we were up in the but mountains, still. and sometimes we had problems with predators, too. It's just inevitable. Oh, You're yeah. in their area. But I remember when I was trying to sell them, we actually put, like, an ad in the paper, and some gal was like, I'll take the whole flock. And I was so excited as a kid, so I got on the phone with her. My dad's like, you know, Corbin, talk to this gal. Come to find out, she was going to use them for target practice. Oh, no. <laughs> I was like, urch. I was like, <laughs> like no. no. My God. I, I love my birds. Anyway, okay. So yeah. off of our, you know, pigeon tangent. That's such a funny connection. Oh my gosh. I, you're like the second person I've ever talked to who also has done this. Wow. Uh, that is insane. I had one other person on the show, a famous author came on my show, Carl Safina, and he also uh -huh. raised pigeons too. And at first I thought like Carl. Mike Tyson. Yeah. Mike Tyson does too. Oh like, my gosh. Yeah. He's like really into homing pigeons. Now he is. I don't know if he still is. Oh my but gosh. Really? Oh yeah, my we God. should fact check this. But Mike Tyson definitely like had a thing with homing pigeons for a while. <laughs> and tigers. What a weird dude. I didn't yeah. get him on the show. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just have a homing pigeon chat. I, I guess, so my dad was a conservation biologist. And um, I just, I knew that I wanted to go into biology. So when I, I went off to college and, you know, kind of put the animal training, animal thing aside. Because I knew I didn't really want to be a farmer. I didn't really know that dog training or like, any of that like was a viable career option. I was one of those kids who kind of always wanted to be like a dolphin trainer or something, but just kind of thought that was like a little unattainable. And maybe a rational part of me was also like, but what do you do when you're 45? Um, oh, yeah, that's a good thing. To uh, I don't know if I actually thought that through that much. I guess I, you know, I, I was a pretty bookish kid. So I knew I wanted to go to college. No, I wanted to get a degree. So I went to Colorado college. Um, and part of the reason I went there is that school, um, what it is, it's on, it's on the block plan. So most colleges are on what's a semester plan. Mm -hmm. Colorado college is on a block plan. So you take one class at a time for three and a half weeks. And, um, so it's really intense, you know, like when you're in organic chemistry, your life is just nothing but organic chemistry for oh three and a half God. weeks. But also there's no other distractions. It's not like, Oh, I've got an organic chemistry test tomorrow and I have to write a term paper. Like all you have to do is chemistry. Wow. That is, I wonder if that's more beneficial. I'm just curious. Cause I, I did it the other way around traditionally yeah. and it sucked both ways. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. It was awful. I think it definitely depends on your learning style. Like if you're someone who is comfortable learning fast and being really immersed, it works very well. But if you're someone who likes to be meticulous, it's a very, very stressful way to try to learn. What about someone just trying to pass the class? Cause that, <laughs> <laughs> depends Colorado college is definitely it's a very uh it's a very competitive school um especially now it's actually gotten a lot more competitive since I left yeah um but yeah there are, I mean there are other programs that do it but anyway so part of what drew me to that is their biology program because you only have one class at a time um you can do these crazy field trips and actually get really cool on the ground field experience so you know by the time I'd graduated from undergrad I'd spent like nine days doing mist netting for birds out in the Chiricahua mountains I'd done electroshocking for fish and you know all this really good field experience that you often don't get as an undergrad unless you're able to land an internship as a job or a job and meanwhile um my freshman year of college first semester I had a work study um award and then something in my financial aid package changed I don't remember exactly what it was but I lost my work study mm -hmm. um I think I was awarded some other external scholarship and that changed the math I don't know it doesn't it doesn't matter um, so I got a job as a dog walker and, uh, you know, I just put an ad on Craigslist saying, Hey, I'll walk your dogs. I was like 20 bucks a day or something. Um, and I did that. And very quickly I started realizing like, Hey, my job is a lot easier if these dogs walk nicely on leash. 
So I started teaching the dogs not to pull. I started teaching them to sit at crosswalks. And it, it also helped me because I was kind of, you know, honestly, walking dogs is kind of boring. Um, <laughs> you know, you just yeah. walk the same route every day. And like, you know, it's just, it's not super exciting. So like I was, te- but I was teaching all these dogs tricks and I was sending vid- videos to their owners. And very quickly, I started getting hiring to getting hired to train dogs instead of just to walk them. Oh, and yeah. So then, you know, by my senior year of college, I was taking a bunch of, I was almost double majoring in psychology and biology. So I was taking both the biology classes and then, you know, things like learning theory and learning and adaptive behavior and cognitive neuroethology, which was like my favorite class of all time. Um, and yeah, so then I graduated from college and got a, got a job with a conservation nonprofit. It was kind of a political activism job. I got burned out of that incredibly quickly. Oh. Um, political activism is not my thing. I mean, kudos to the people who can do it, but it just burned me was out it, very, very quickly. Was it during, um, when was this? Was this, was it during? This was during the fall of 2016. So I was there during oh my the God. election. Oh my and God. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. Um, what did, well, no wonder there was an open position. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, yeah. And I, I don't, I don't think I had quite understood when I applied just how political the job was. You know, I was like, Oh, a conservation nonprofit. Cool. Yeah. And then it was a lot of door knocking and that oh. sort of, you know, just, it was, it was, it was intense. And, you know, I mean, the country is just so divided that even, you know, people just, even when you're going to talk to them about like local ballot initiatives um, that are relatively bipartisan, like people just assume and just want you out. So, you know, it, it, it was a hard job. Um, and then I got a job at an animal shelter. Um, and my job there was working with these incredible, the behaviorally challenging dogs. So the shelter Denver Dumb Friends League is one of the largest animal shelters in the country. They get like 20,000 animals a year. Wow. Um, and the behavior team's job is – so they're an open admission shelter. So they never turn an animal away. Um, so that means that we get dogs in with really serious behavior issues um, sometimes. So it was the behaviors team team's job to assess those dogs, train or, you know, help those dogs however we could, you know, whenever necessary. And then, you know, make the decisions about what sort of home those dogs could go into and cats as well, which was also really fun. I got to do a little bit of multi-species work. Um yeah. And then from there, I, you know, and I knew that I, I loved that work. And I, around that time, I heard about conservation detection dogs. And at the shelter, some of my favorite dogs to work with were the really high energy ones. And they were also the ones that were hardest to work with in the shelter environment. You know, the fearful dogs, a lot of it is, okay, we're going to teach you that when humans show up, you get a treat. And when humans walk by, you get a treat, blah, 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 blah. You know, it's very systematic and the shelter was very good at helping dogs with those issues and even aggression you know it's a lot of like hey when something approaches you that freaks you out instead of biting you're going to learn to back up you know it's but the dogs that were really high energy just really struggled in the shelter environment and they were also the ones that I really liked (laughs) um and so I heard about working dogs for conservation and was like oh my gosh there's an option for these dogs um and with my background in biology, and I really loved the field biology, and I, you know, at the uh, like, kind of bopping back and forth between, I loved the activism of and the conservation focus of the one job, but the actual tasks just ate at me. Versus at the shelter, I loved my day to day work, but I felt like a piece of like my my life's mission was missing, mm-hmm. um, and I didn't get to be outside as much as I liked. I didn't get to go like I'm I'm a, I'm really into the environment, and um. Yeah, I then worked as a freelance writer for a year, um, and I got to travel, which was fun. And um, you're so young, the, though. You're like you I'm, look so young. I mean, are I, you like I, fifty years old? <laughs> like, are you like are you one of those that has a young face? Because I mean, you just look so fresh no, and I'm, young out of college. I'm 26. Um, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Twins. Okay. Okay. So yeah, I you know it was about eight months at the conservation nonprofit and just shy of two years at the shelter and then about a year of travel. Okay. Very cool. Um, and yeah, I, I, at that time I was actually, I was applying for a Fulbright grant to get my master's degree. And what I wanted to do for my master's was to study these conservation detection dogs. Um, and I was applying for that and through the process of applying for it, I connected with working dogs for conservation and was like, Hey, I'm applying for this grant. Can you guys help me a little bit with the process? You know, can I get some information on the inside for, for my grant proposal? 
And they helped me out and we kind of stayed in touch. And I ultimately was a finalist for the grant, but didn't receive the grant. Mm. And Working Dogs for Conservation hired me. Wow. Um, now, did they create the position for you or did they have an, no, an opening? No, they knew that they, they wanted a communications and outreach person. They did um, kind of reach out to me and offer me the job before they actually Oh my God. It. So many listeners are hating you right now. <laughs> I'm kidding. I, know. I mean, no, no, no. I mean, you're, but that I, is a lucky I, break, I but you were still lessons to be learned. Okay. You know? yes. like, and, and you worked hard. I, I just want to say it didn't just fall on yeah. your lap. You worked hard. You pursued no. education hours upon hours. Like, yeah, no, but that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, I think part of what helped is I made connections with Working Dogs for Conservation um, where I wasn't just coming to them asking for a job because um, we get a lot of those inquiries. We get buckets of emails asking us if people can do internships or how they can get involved with us. And the honest answer is we don't have enough work for that many unpaid interns, <laughs> you mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. um, so I think when I came to the organization saying, hey, I'm writing this grant, can I just pick your brains for a little bit about a couple numbers? I was able to get the time of day and kind of get my foot in the door. Um, and, you know, not everyone is going to want to write a grant, but I think showing that I had this really intense, dedicated interest, and then I had a skill set that lent me really nicely to this job. You know, I had a YouTube channel, I had a blog, I had a bunch of articles I'd written so they could actually see that I was good at talking, that I was good on camera, that I knew what I was talking about with the, both the dog training and the biology. Um, yeah, you're, so you're great. I didn't know what I, I didn't know. I'm serious. Cause I didn't know, I didn't know what to expect coming into the interview. And a lot of times, and this is not bashing on anyone who is a PR person at a zoo or this or that, but a lot of those PR people, not all of them, but the majority, I would say don't really have animal backgrounds. They come from a different, yeah, you know exactly. what I mean? And I didn't know if this was someone purely yeah. coming and there's nothing wrong with that. I, I'm like, yeah, no. the microphone, there's nothing wrong with that, but it's awesome that you actually like, I mean, you live and breathe it. You're not just a person with great communication you're actually you know dedicated oh that's awesome and i think that's so when they also when they had first kind of created the idea that like okay we need a dedicated communications person i think they didn't know that they were they didn't i don't think they thought that they were going to be able to get everything in mm -hmm. one person so when i showed up saying hey i'm a good writer hey i'm i'm, I'm a decent talker and i know the biology and i know the dogs um that helped a lot. So I think, you know, when people ask me how to get involved, I say, have a diverse skill set. And sometimes you don't know what those skill sets that people are going to want are. I applied for a job at one point in college where I said, I can drive manual on really rough roads. I speak Spanish and I'm up to date on my rabies vaccine. And they said, you're in. You That's know? awesome. That's I, the I, best I, advice. And I ended up not doing it. But, you know, there are these things where it's like, I, there was another job that I applied for where I mentioned that I was a rock climber somewhere in my resume. And they were like, oh, part of the job is climbing up trees to get at these raptor nests. Again, I didn't end up taking that job. But, um, you know, there were these things where they were like, our last intern was scared of heights and it was awful for the job. Um, wow. That's a great, yeah. A lot of young listeners listen to the show and they're like, how do I break into the field? It's the number one email I get. It's like, how do I do it? I've applied to, you know, I don't know, 50 organizations. They've all said, no, that's great. Have a diverse skill set because you never know what they're going to be looking for. Yeah. And especially if you're interested in, you know, tropical or international field work, yeah. languages and, you know, being relatively self-sufficient outdoors, being able to drive manual, like all of these things are things that you can learn that are actually really, especially driving manual, yep. <laughs> which biology. is kind of funny. Yeah. In but yeah, in, in biology, and if you want to work internationally and in rural areas being proficient at, you know, rough driving, uh, you know, and that's something that you can learn. That's so weird um, you said that. I, yeah, I had one of the, well, actually, like the world's number one, I don't know, top hyena researcher on my show, Dr. Kay Holkamp, and she studies uh -huh. hyenas in, in the Maasai Mara. And I just was so excited, but I was asking her about her research students, and she said, most kids these days don't even know how to drive like a manual. They don't know how to change a tire. Like, that's what she's looking for with exactly. applicants, not your grades or your, I'm mean, sure it helps, but just real life experience. That is really, yeah. That's yeah, I mean, I, I, I have a feeling that there were a couple times where, you know, being the kid who had raised homing pigeons, like I people just remembered that. And when so many of these jobs are so competitive, you're unlikely to be able to stick out just by your grades. So having something that's a little unusual um, and hopefully helpful, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, that that 
I would imagine gets people's attention. And again, I mean, I think for me, it, w- it really helped that I had reached out to this organization before I was just asking for a job. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had a relationship with them beforehand. And honestly, the, the next hire that we made after me was also someone that we had worked with previously. Well, well, great advice. Great advice, Kayla. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about, so you land the position. Let's talk a little bit about the conservation projects that you specialize in because it's all over the world, which is just phenomenal. And yeah, let's just talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I think what we can do is maybe I'll pick kind of one project out of each of our three buckets that I'm familiar with. Heck yeah. We can talk about that. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So the first project that I got to work on um, with my dog, Barley, who's um, he's a rescue border collie that I picked up at the shelter that I worked at, um, who happened to get hired along with me. Um, He and I went out to Yellowstone this year. So, you know, first national park in the world. It's just it's such a special place. And what we were doing there is we were inspecting boats for zebra mussels. And zebra mussels are these little teeny tiny mussels. They're about the size of your pinky fingernail when they're full grown. Um, they're from the Black Sea originally, I believe, outside of, um, you know, in Ukraine. And they're extremely prolific. They're a huge problem in the Great Lakes. They're present in a 46 out of 50 states in the oh, U.S. Oh, God. Um, and they're just, they're, they're freshwater mussels, and they grow into these kind of like reef systems that clog drain pipes, so they're really bad for industry. They cut up but your feet so they're really bad for tourism and they also they're filter feeders so they filter all the nutrients out of the water so they're really bad for the fish and the other animals in the area the only upside is they do make the water a little bit clearer so they can make lakes really pretty Uh um Uh but it's because there's everything is dead Uh. so they're awful Hmm. um and wyoming yeah (laughs) wyoming (laughs) washington idaho and montana are the only four states right now that do not have them yeah. And if you get an infestation, they're pretty much impossible to get rid of. Um, there have been some attempts with things like draining small lakes, which oh. obviously kills everything. Um, it, it's just, it's really bad. Um, so in Yellowstone and a lot of our other national parks, you're required to get aquatic invasive species inspection. And we were coming out with the dogs to kind of help do a little bit of, you know, show and tell and see. They already had rangers who do this sort of work, but hey, let's see how the dogs do it and see, you know, if it's something that the park, I think the parks are exploring getting dogs of their own. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we found is, so that we have these little booths, you know, or the rangers have these little booths with the aquatic invasive species information and the boaters are required to stop and they've got, you know, some informational stuff. But not many people tend to stop. As soon as we had a dog there, we talked to over 700 people in two weeks who all wanted to come by and ask, you know, is the dog sniffing for drugs? What's going on? Why is there a dog here? He's really cute. Can I pet him? You know, that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And we're kind of able to use the dog to lure in these people to talk to them more about conservation. And the dogs are also incredibly fast at searching these boats, which can be really helpful if you're a ranger who's overworked. You've got six boats deep. Everyone wants to get out on the water and go fishing. The dogs are very, very fast and very, very efficient. Um, And we actually had a really cool, um, I mean, cool for me, but a really big scare um, when we were there. So um, we, let me me see if I can get this. This is a little bit visual, but I think I can do it. Um, There's a trailer, right? And there's a boat in the back of the trailer, and it's a pretty Uh big boat. And the bow of that boat, so the big triangle up in front, is actually kind of squeezed in between two little jet skis. Mm-hmm. And those jet skis are up on the front of the trailer. You're not allowed to have jet skis on the water in Yellowstone. Um, they're just, you know, they're kind of loud and, you know, it, it's not a national park thing. So, you know, they, these people didn't get their jet skis inspected. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's reasonable. That's fine. And then we're watching as they're backing their boat in. And because of the way the trailer is set up, the jet skis were actually going into the water as well. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, but they hadn't been inspected. Oh. And when we we kind of like all rushed over there and we're like, oh my gosh, okay, where were these jet skis used last? Can we pull them out and inspect them? Make sure we haven't done anything, you know, made a huge mistake here. And it turns out the jet skis had last been used in um, Lake Powell, oh. which is massively infected with zebra mussels. Oh so my we're all God. freaking out. <laughs> Um, you know, the Rangers do a once over, but jet skis, I, I can't explain exactly why I don't know much about how they work, but they're notoriously difficult to inspect thoroughly. Um, something about how the jet works. It's so generally for boats, if the boat is clean, drained and dry, the, everything should be dead and we should be good to go. But you can't actually fully drain and dry the inside of a jet ski. 
Okay. Um, you can do what's called burping it. Oh, but that's okay. it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Again, this is like I'm not a mechanic, so yeah, um, absolutely. We're... I don't think we have many that listen to the show. Maybe I don't even know. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, no. Let us know. If you're a Let mechanic. us know. Email me, please. <laughs> uh... But yeah, so we go and we get the we get the dogs and we have both Barley, who's kind of our rookie dog, and then Tobias, who's done a ton of muscle detection work. And he's been to multiple different national parks doing this. Um, and we run each dog through the jet skis and both dogs show absolutely no interest in them. And it was just one of those things where, you know, the rangers had done their best and they'd looked and they'd inspected, but it was really nice for all of us to just have that second check from the dogs and to see, okay, the dogs really aren't showing any interest in this at all. Cause sometimes you'll see, you know, they'll take a double take and if there's like some vegetation or something a little bit different, they'll inspect that more carefully. Mm-hmm. But they really, I mean, they were, they were not interested at all. But- how uh, how accurate are they? Is that? Yeah, so I'm not sure if we've done accuracy studies um, for zebra mussels, but conservation detection dogs, you know, it kind of ranges from depending on the difficulty of the target. You know, we've gotten up to 97% accuracy, actually, on the next project I was going to talk to you about. But then on that same project, depending on how we set up the study, we got we were getting about 45% accuracy. Okay, just depends. It depends. And, you know, it depends a lot. You know, sometimes we get hired to, f- to sniff out like pathogens, you know, diseases uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, or little things underground. You know, we were trying to do this study looking at finding bumblebee nests, which are underground. Um, and there's just some stuff where there's just not enough scent moving and the dog's efficacy really drops. Okay. Um, zebra mussels, when we have done work, you know, we, they've I think it, we, we had to pass an exam to be like us, um, you know, you can't just come up and say, Hey, my dog can do this. Um, we had to pass those exams with, I think a hundred percent accuracy. Great. great. So, Perfect. Perfect. um, you know, we did do that, but I, I, I don't remember exactly, you know, we've done some bigger studies, um, and I don't remember what it kind of shook out to, but I think it was equal to or better than the people. And the nice thing is people and dogs have different weaknesses. So if you've got a trained inspector and a trained dog working together, they, um, you know, they can help offset each other's weaknesses. That's great. That's awesome. Yeah. So that was, I mean, that was just a really, you know, again, it was terrifying, but it was a really cool thing and just really cool to see, oh, wow. You know, the dogs, even when they're working with these expert rangers actually have a lot of utility. Yeah. And for someone listening who is like thinking like, oh my God, zebra mussels, this is like, why is this a big deal? Once again, they're just so invasive and completely what? Destroy an ecosystem from the fish. I mean, yeah. what else? Just everything. It's a trickle down effect, everything. Right? I mean, they cause, I want to say billions of dollars of damage every year on the Great Lakes. Oh my God. Uh, yeah. So billions. They get into dams and piping and they clog all of that. And they're mm. just, they're incredibly damaging to infrastructure. Um, and the uh, Yellowstone is also unique. I mean, Yellowstone's an, an amazing place that we don't want anything about it to be taken over with invasive species. But it's also the Yellow, Lake Yellowstone, Yellowstone Lake, um, sits at the top of the headwaters. So if zebra mussels were to get into that lake, they'll travel downstream and infect just massive amounts of other lakes and streams because that's how water flows. Wow. Uh, it would so be a complete disaster. Like, yeah, it would be a really big deal. Okay, yeah, okay. <laughs> um, so, yeah, they're, uh, and, and from where, where I'm from in, in Wisconsin, um, they're, they're just a huge problem. Luckily, I'm far enough north in northern Wisconsin. They're not very big in Lake Superior because it's actually just too cold for them, but we do have a lot of problems with quagga mussels, which are a different species of invasive mussel. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, so the next project I'd love to tell you about is um, black-footed ferret work. So are you familiar oh, with black-footed Oh, ferrets? I am. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, so, uh, there's but, but, people, a, I, but people here probably yeah. wouldn't even know, so go yeah. ahead. Yeah, it's such a cool story. So I believe at some point in the 80s, um, we thought black-footed ferrets were extinct. We um, Prairie dogs had been hit by some bubonic plague. Um, the prairie dogs, I think, were also kind of being decimated, um, you know, with intentional eradication. Um, and that's a black-footed ferret's main food. So think, um, you know, if you guys go to Petco, PetSmart, you know, they've got ferrets. Black-footed ferrets are very similar to those. They, mm-hmm. they, they've just got some distinctive markings. They've got really cute little bandit masks, um, real devious little weasels. Mm-hmm. Um, but we thought they were extinct. And then in, I'm getting, I'm not quite clear on the years here, but at some point, 
someone's dog actually brought one to her front door. And I don't know whether the dog had killed it or if the dog had found it dead. Mm -hmm. Um, But this woman looked at it and said, I have no idea what this animal is. And she called the game wardens and they came out and, you know, they're like, oh my gosh, there are black footed ferrets that are still alive somewhere. They found them. I believe there was 18 individuals left. Wow. And this is, by the way, this is in the middle of like, this is like the middle of the, this is West. I'm not West, but it's like, it's like, um, what prairie grassland, you know, habitat. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Yep. yep. So it's somewhere out in Wyoming. Mm-hmm. I don't know exactly where. Mm-hmm. Um, and they live trapped, I think, all of them and put them into a captive breeding program. You know, we're like, OK, we're not going to let you we're not going to let anything more happen to you guys. We're going to get them all in. Um, we're going to feed you guys as many prairie dogs as you can eat. You're going to have as many babies as we can get. And then we're going to start releasing them. So um, black footed ferrets for conservationists, they're really important Um just, uh, they're, you know, they're, we don't like animals to be extinct. So they're a really cool story because we thought they were extinct and then it turns out they weren't. But for conservationists who want to study them, they're also particularly difficult to keep track of. Because of the way they're shaped, you know, they're like little tubes. They're incredibly difficult to keep like radio collars on. You don't want anything on them that's going to get caught as they're going through burrows because that could hurt them. Um, and, you know, if you don't want to cinch it down so tight that as they grow or get fatter or whatever, it's going to get embedded in their skin, obviously. Um, so collars are really hard. And even with good telemetry, um, when the ferrets are underground, we can't find them with telemetry anyway. So it's just generally not worth it long term to do radio collars the way that it is for, you know, like elk research or something where, you know, you can go and find those guys. Um, and they can carry around a pretty big, bulky radio collar without it being too much of an impediment. So they're also largely nocturnal. They're pretty small. They're mostly solitary unless they're raising young. And they mostly live underground. So good luck finding them, you mm-hmm. know. So we're doing all these breeding, captive breeding and release efforts. And it's just really hard to know how they're actually doing once they're out into the wild. So we've done work in the past with the dogs where we've got, you know, we'll train the dogs on. Um, basically what we'll do is we'll get a, we, we get ferrets um, or we start with ferret body parts from ferrets that died of natural causes and we train the dogs on that and then at some point once the dogs are doing pretty well we actually get real live ferrets and put them in like the end of a pvc pipe uh-huh. um, to simulate a burrow okay to teach the dogs that like hey you're not going to be able to necessarily get your nose all the way to where that odor is strongest because that's generally what the dogs are trained to do the, jo- yeah. the dogs aren't supposed to say hey a fox walked through here last week they're supposed to say hey i found the fox poop it's right here um and this project's a little different, which is challenging for them. Anyway, um, so we've done that before. And in the past, when the dogs have said, hey, there's a ferret in this hole, you know, the only thing we can do is mark it. And then, you know, unless a ferret, and this does happen sometimes, sometimes they like stick their head out and they chatter at you all angrily. <laughs> yeah. So then we say, okay, great. The dog was correct. Yeah. Yep, yep. um, and then sometimes we'll have, you know, we'll have spotlighters go out that night and watch or put camera traps out to try to see whether or not the dogs were correct, but sometimes it's kind of hard to tell. And what's also really important and hard for our dogs from a training perspective is we can't reward the dogs in the field because we don't want to reward the dogs if the dogs are incorrect and then have the dogs say, oh, okay, actually, so it's okay if the ferret was just here a week ago, Mm -hmm. Um, which does happen sometimes when the dogs are tired or frustrated, they just kind of pick something and say, is this what you're looking for? I want my darn ball Mm -hmm. um so you know we have to be careful not to reward them unless we're sure that they're correct Mm -hmm. so that's tough on the dogs and tough on the handlers Mm -hmm. this project that we just did we actually had the opportunity to go out while there were uh, ferrets that had been radio collared which is the first time we've been able to do that nice so um we had a team that was going out at night doing telemetry and marking down the ferrets last known location at like 5 a.m then <laughs> very dedicated team between 5 a.m. and 8 a.m. was creating different maps for us okay. um, to tell us where to go and search. And then so we didn't know where the ferrets were, but we knew, OK, this is the area we need to search. Mm-hmm. And then we were able to go out with the dogs. And then once the dog has alerted and the dog is saying, hey, there's a ferret here, then we can pull up the other map and see whether or not the dog is correct. OK, OK. So this is the first time we've been able to reward the dogs in real time. Excuse me, which is really, really cool. And what we found is the dogs were accurate at up to 97%, um, kind of depending on, we did three different options. We either searched really, really, you know, pretty small areas where we had the dogs check every single hole, mm-hmm. you know, and there's mm-hmm. 
tons of holes in these prairie dog towns. Mm-hmm. And that's where the dogs were at 97% accuracy. Okay. And then we did, um, you know, multi, multi, multi acre um, searches that I believe were, you know, like a couple hundred acres. Um, and there we did both 100 meter transects. So every 100 meters we walk a line. Or we did 300 meter transects. So every 300 meters we walk a line. At 100 meter transects, the dogs were at 90% accuracy which is really good. Mm-hmm. Um, we also had at least one case where we actually had two dogs both miss the place where the telemetry said the ferret was, but they both picked the same other hole. And it is technically possible that the ferret had moved between 8 a.m. and 11 a.m. Yep, you know, yep, like yep, yep. We, we don't know. So, and I don't remember exactly which um, site that was on, whether that was um, this one or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when we were at 300 meter transects, the dogs were only at 45% accuracy, which sounds not great. Um, but spotlighting teams, which are kind of one of our other best tools for ferrets are also at about 45% accuracy. Mm-hmm. Um, and the spotlighting teams hit 45% accuracy working overnight and in about three days worth of work versus the dogs can do it in just an hour or two. Wow. So it's faster, more efficient, and yeah. you're not out there all darn night <laughs> not out there all, night. all day for that. yeah nights. yep okay. the dogs are expensive so you know i'm not saying they're unilaterally better but they're definitely something that now we can kind of say okay we've been doing the studies and we can say dogs are definitely useful at this and there's something that can and should be considered mm-hmm. as part as you know as part of the tool pool bo- mm-hmm. toolbox <laughs> absolutely okay that's awesome yeah. okay so what is the third project you're going to talk about Oh boy. Um, I actually, let me think about which one I want to talk about. You know, I think I'll tell you this. Is, I, I'm not as intimately familiar with this project, but it's one of our really cool ones is, so we've worked, we work in both Tanzania and Zambia mm-hmm. helping train anti-poaching units there. Mm. So several of our co-founders have quite a bit of um, research experience in Africa. Um, so we've, you know, I don't know exactly how these connections came about, but, um, we were able, we're able to help work with these anti-poaching units where we've got, you know, these American rescue dogs that, you know, one of them is a dog from a reservation up in Northern Montana who has since gone blind. You know, he's, you know, a total, a, a total tough case of a dog, but he's found his, his calling doing this. And we've helped teach these dogs to find snares ivory guns ammo bushmeat skins scales all sorts of stuff and um the dogs are also trained to track um so you know there's a difference between detection is you know they're they're the the scent molecules are moving through the air and the dog is trying to find that through the air um Kind of like if you're walking through the grocery store and all of a sudden you smell those free samples an aisle down. <laughs> That's what we're doing there. Yeah. Um, and then tracking is where the dog actually is kind of given a line of scent and the dog is supposed to follow it through on the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think humans do anything that's very akin to this. Our sense of smell is just so bad compared yeah, to our dogs. How much, it's, yeah, it's, how, yeah, tell us, like, how much better is a dog's sense of smell? So dogs' sense of smell is about 100,000 times better than humans, but that's kind of hard to conceptualize. Yeah. Um, so a dog's sense of smell is so sensitive that they can actually smell the equivalent of about half a teaspoon of sugar if you dumped it into an Olympic-sized swimming pool. Oh, my gosh. That's a good <laughs> analogy. Okay. Yeah. I've never heard that yeah, it's, one. Yeah. It's, it's just insane. I mean, I watch my dog sometimes, and it's like he can access a fourth dimension, yeah. you know? Okay. Um. It's it's weird to watch sometimes because it's just something so outside of what our umwelt is mm-hmm. uh, and what how we perceive the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, one of the really cool stories with these tracking dogs is we actually had the dogs. Um, there was I think the an animal had been poached, um, and we set the dogs on the track, and we had two do- dogs. Um, rotating back and forth on the track to take turns because it's really tiring to do this. And I believe that they worked 14 kilometers through the night back and forth, which is just crazy far through like, you know, it's African bush. It's not like it's on a walking path. Um, and they did find a poacher's camp where they, where they got over 980 kilograms of bush meat. Um, yeah. And you know, again, these are, these are dogs that, you know, like flunked out of normal homes and, We're potentially, honestly, going to get euthanized. Not always, you know, some of our dogs, like my dog Barley, would absolutely have gotten adopted 
without me. But some of our other dogs do have pretty significant behavioral issues. Um, and yeah, I mean, Whoa. can you I, imagine? Like, I don't think they could have done it without the dogs. No, and it's just one of those feel-good stories. I don't know. You hardly come across them anymore, but it's just like, it's just I can't even believe, you know, you take a shelter animal and turn it, in, and they're just helping, you know, save wild animals and wild yeah. habitats. It's just phenomenal. And that's what... It's when, so cool. <laughs> when I read about, and I know you said that, I guess the gorilla thing, but the Cross River Gorilla, I just looked it up today. The uh, the World Wildlife Fund says there's only two to 300 of these Cross River yeah. Gorillas left in the world. And yeah. the dogs are being trained to what to um to to find their to to find their poo correct their scat right yeah it's, yep. yeah and I think we were working with um I think we actually had some partner uh, I'm not gonna yeah and we were working to help you know not just find the scat but then also once you find that scat you can figure out you know what they're eating so what's important for their habitat all that sort of stuff which often is already known but then you can also look at the individual's health from that scat you know because the cool thing once you've got scat is you can also you know you can you can get everything from reproductive status and hormone levels to you know all sorts of different pathogens parasite load all sorts of stuff so then we're able to say whether or not an individual is actually doing okay um which is important because especially with these wild animals that you just can't get close to. And especially, you know, with these animals that are at high risk for poaching, we really don't want them getting used to researchers. Yeah, um, that is a the difference awesome between point. a researcher and a poacher for a lot of these animals is a hard distinction to make. Um, so it's hard to say if one of these animals is sick and, you know, wild animals, it's not helpful to them to say, Oh, I'm not feeling good. They've got to pretend they're feeling great. Cause otherwise they're a target. Um, so that was one of the really cool things that we were able to do with this particular project. It was a hard project. It's hard on the people. It's hard on the dogs. The terrain is really rough. Um, mm -hmm. but yeah, I mean, it's just incredible. And you were um, able to uncover like ivory, rhino horn, um, pangolin scales, all that kind of, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And I think th those are two separate projects. Um, okay. Yeah. So the dogs that do the anti-poaching stuff are actually kind of dedicated anti-poaching dogs. So how it kind of works for us is we've got about 35 dogs we've trained and a dozen of those are based in Africa. So that's all they do is they're just kind of embedded in the anti-poaching unit. There still are dogs and we're always like there to support them and help troubleshoot the training or whatever. And if, you know, if a program were to lose funding or something, we would get the dogs back. Mm -hmm. um, versus then we also have about a dozen dogs who um, are based here in Montana or kind of in the surrounding area. And those dogs get to go out and do various short-term projects. So like my dog, Barley, um, you know, he was doing zebra mussels. And then this coming year, we're doing some red fox work and we're going to do some ferret work next year. He's going to be working on some invasive plants. And it's a lot of these like two-week projects here and there mm -hmm. versus those anti-poaching dogs. Um, you know, they do that all the time. So I think the cross river gorilla project that we did, we actually had dogs flown in specially for that so that we weren't taking dogs away from the anti-poaching unit. Wow. That's just incredible. I just, I thank you so much for taking the time <laughs> to come on the show and just, <laughs> and talk about the work that, you know, your organization and, and what the dogs are doing. I just, it's just phenomenal. Where can people find more information about working dogs for conservation? Yeah. So we are at WD4C.org. So, okay letters and then the number four wd4c.org um and people you know we're on we're on instagram we're on facebook you guys can f find us there we do have a twitter but i it don't we don't use it so you know yeah. instagram and facebook are the main ways um and if you guys would like to see there's actually a fabulous video of our dogs in action um from the ferret work that we can i would imagine link in the show notes great absolutely yes um, please send it to me and i'll put it in the show notes yeah, yeah. There, I mean, we've got several good videos, but there, because we talked about that ferret project, there's a really great one um, that Arizona Game and Fish Department put together showing what the dogs are able to do that also shows kind of the spotlighting efforts and kind of how hard both sides of the work are. Um, but yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Facebook, Instagram, and then our website. Oh, We're my. Around. Okay, so I can't believe I'm asking you this at the end of the interview, but I'm curious. How long does it take to train a dog like Barley, your dog, to detect a muscle or a dog to detect a tusk or animal parts? Yeah. That's a, I just want so to know what that, how long. that initial training, um, where, you know, we've just gotten a dog out of the shelter and, you know, he's getting, he or she is getting trained for their first task. 
generally takes on the order of, uh, you know, six weeks to six months. Okay. Kind of depending on the dog. You know, some of our dogs come in, again, because they're coming from shelter environments with quite a bit of baggage. Um, versus, you know, like my dog Barley, he, I think we went from him not knowing anything about zebra mussels to him being deployed for zebra mussels in about two weeks. Wow. But we'd already done um, quite a bit of other baseline work. So I'd already done some AKC scent work, you know, like competitions. Mm-hmm. So he kind of knew the game. And then, you know, once they know the game and they understand the concept of searching for something and then getting rewarded with their toy, adding in a new scent is often pretty quick, you know, on the order of a couple weeks. Okay. Um, is it? And then, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I was going to say, and then it kind of depends. Some of our dogs are really good at certain types of things. So like we've got this dog, Tobias, who he's a really, really, really high energy lab who just wants to go a million miles an hour. And what we've actually found is what really helps slow him down and helps him think is he does a good job with detailed searches. So he's kind of our muscle guy. He's done work with finding ant colonies. He really excels at that because when we kind of let him open up and search multi-hundred acre plots he kind of loses his head mm-hmm. <laughs> versus some of our other dogs that detailed work is just exhausting and frustrating and they kind of hate it mm-hmm. so you know it depends on the dog as well and we try to make sure that we're giving them jobs that they can be really successful at um and that they like um and, you know, then it also kind of matters. So, like, for example, my dog Barley is trained now on red fox. Red fox are extremely common throughout the country. Mm-hmm. So if someone came to us and said, hey, I want to do a um, research on Canadian lynx or something, Barley would not be a good dog for that project. Because as we're out walking our transects, for every one lynx he finds, we're going to find, I don't know, 10, 20, 30 fox scats. And it's just going to be a big waste of time for everyone. So instead, they're, you know, a dog who doesn't know an animal that lives in that area or knows another animal that's equally rare Mm -hmm. um would be a better fit so kind of depends out of curiosity i love how i like ended the interview then i'm asking you more questions (laughs) sorry i'm fascinated you can can chop it up and reinsert it right i I don't think i'm gonna keep it live (laughs) i'm gonna keep it organic people love it hopefully uh no Mm -hmm. but i have a question why are you um training them to to find fox scat is it like a new study yeah or i'm just out of curiosity yeah so this is a study um i don't actually know exactly what the question is but i think they're looking at um several different species of kind of medium to small sized canids in the sierra nevada and i think they're probably i get i'm kind of guessing um but i think they're looking at kind of competition between the different species and trying to see whether you know if the coyotes and the sierra nevada red fox versus the eurasian red fox are kind of occupying the same niches because the sierra nevada red fox is actually um, endemic to that area versus the Eurasian red fox is pretty much everywhere. Coyotes are pretty much everywhere. So I think they're just kind of trying to see how they all okay. interact. Okay. Thank you for giving me a little sneak peek. And one last question, I think, uh, <laughs> how, uh, is it ever dangerous out in the field for the dogs? Yeah, it definitely can be. I mean, the anti-poaching stuff is, can be really scary. Um, I mean, these are massive international organized crime units um so you know like when they're doing the tracking back to the poachers camps we actually pull the dogs off um before we get too close to the camp so that the dogs aren't the ones charging right into the poaching camps mm-hmm. um you know like I, like i did some really cool work out in um uh costa rica shadowing one of our dogs tigre who is a failed service dog mm-hmm. or a career change sh- service dog we're not supposed to say he failed <laughs> um, and uh, he's trained to find jaguar scat. And, you know, we're walking along looking for jaguar scat um, and a fertilance pops up in the trail. Oh, so, my gosh. And those are those are serious, serious snakes. Um, yeah. And unlike our North American rattlers, they don't rattle. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I, and I stepped right over it. Uh-huh. And, it, you know, it was, it, it was a little guy. Yeah. But still, yeah. I stepped over it and then the next person saw it and then they managed to stop the dog. Um But in a lot of these cases, you know, we'll have a local guide walking out in front to look out for snakes or spiders or whatever dangerous wildlife you've got. And then you've got an orienteer and then you've got the dog and then you've got the handler. So it's kind of this whole entourage that moves through to try to, again, keep everyone safe. You know, we uh, wildlife is definitely a thing that we're thinking about. You know, we do grizzly bear surveys here in Montana and, you know, you're out there intentionally in areas where grizzly bears are known to be so you can find their scat. And you've got, you've got an off-leash dog. Um, so, you know, we work with the dogs. They're often wearing bra- blaze orange vests. They're wearing bells. We've got bear spray. 
we've got our GPSs. People know where we are. We haven't had any major incidents, but um, it definitely could be could be pretty scary pretty quickly. And a lot of the different things that we're doing, it just you know, so far so good. We we do our very best to you know keep everyone as safe as possible. The dogs are extremely valuable. Oh, and one of the things people actually want to know that I'll throw in Absolutely. just you know on the note of how much we love and care for the dogs. Um, my dog Barley is currently asleep on my bed. Um, <laughs> most of our dogs live in our homes with us. Oh yeah, that's a great hello. We're yeah. <laughs> thank you for bringing um, that up. Okay. You know, people people always want to know, especially when we're talking to shelters and we're saying, "Hey, we're interested in one of your dogs." And they're like, "Oh, but he's going to like live out in a kennel outside all the time." Yep, yep. And like our dogs in the anti-poaching units do live in kennel situations, but the anti-poaching unit also lives in a dorm situation. So they don't get to live in a home, but also the poaching unit doesn't get to live in a home. So mm. no one's in a home. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and then um, if, the, if and when the dogs retire, um, generally what we'll do is the dogs get kind of phased out of projects. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we try to reduce international travel because that's really hard on them. They might no longer be trekking through the mountains of Alaska um, you know, they might get sent out to Iowa to do surveys on wind farms or something as some of their oh, last that projects. That sounds awful. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's actually really pretty. Uh, I'm, sure it's be- I'm sorry. You just like hit me with like trekking grizzly bears and then like ending with the wind farm in Iowa. I'm sure it's beautiful. <laughs> I don't think the dogs care. I know. Um, I'm I, just kidding. I love cloud watching. So I actually love the prairie work. <laughs> um, you get to do a lot of cool storm watching. And you get to notice, like, I mean, the little things, like uh-huh. the number of um, ground bird nests that I find when we're doing our Iowa work is actually, it's just like, it's amazing. I mean, when you actually walk slowly through the prairie, there's a lot going on. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Uh, I actually, I mean, I think honestly, our Arizona field work um, was my least favorite study site. That I've been oh, really? To. It's just dusty. Um, just yeah, dusty. dusty and, and you know what? I, I have to I, say something. I used to, because I did a lot of like cross country travel and I would go, I mean, all the way across country. And I used to hate Wyoming just because it was like, oh, there's nothing <laughs> out there. But then when you realize like this is the last great American West, this is what it was like. And when you start looking, yeah. you see pronghorn, you see birds, you see a lot of wildlife. So I'm happy you said that. It's not as boring as you would think. It's not. Yeah. And even Arizona, I just, I think I was just kind of tired of being really dusty and kind of hot, oh, um, yeah. but really cool. I mean, we saw javelinas, oh, wow. we saw some rattlesnakes, the tarantulas were out and I'm, I love, I'm, 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 I'm not huge into spiders, but I like tarantulas. Fine oh, distinction. I love tarantulas too. Oh my yeah. God. And they're, I don't know. The rattlesnakes always wig me out a little bit, but the tarantulas, uh-huh. it's like, oh, you're fine. Yeah. <laughs> I won't step on you. You're not going to bite me. We'll be fine. The rattlesnakes, it's like, ooh, okay, give me space. <laughs> um, and I'll give you space, please. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, you know, I mean, like our dogs, um, my, one of our other dogs, um, you know, he gets hyd- they get hydrotherapy and they get acupuncture and like they've got pretty cool retirement packages, um, okay, good. which is, you know, really nice. Again, because people just always, they always want to know and, you know, they, we, we take really good care of them. And if a dog doesn't work out in the program, which does happen, um, you know, sometimes we have to make pretty quick decisions about whether or not we're going to pull a dog and say, yeah, we'll give him a shot. And then they flunk out. Um, we then, you know, it depends on the adoption contract. Some shelters say, Hey, if you don't want them, we want them back. And then, you know, we honor that. Um, and if not, then we do a lot of private rehoming. So the most recent dog that kind of flunked out of our program actually went home with the person who we were paying to train her. Okay, nice. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, she liked her a lot. She just wasn't a great working dog. Um, you know, so that's the other thing, you know, if a dog doesn't work out in the program, we do try to make sure that they get really well taken care of and end up somewhere good. Okay, one last question. Are you ready for it? Yeah. Are you ready? You look nervous. No, I'm kidding. No, you don't. You look I'm funny. nervous. Yeah, no. Are you? Yeah, yeah, I'm nervous. No. Um, is, is there a dream conservation project or one that you are working on? Ooh. I mean, for me personally... I mean, I'm just wanting, I'm, I'm hoping the organization gets, I haven't been to Africa yet, um, just period, ever. So I'm really hoping that at some point, you know, we can figure out a good reason for me to get to go to Africa for my job. Or I think what, what I would also love to see is getting involved with our um, Andean bears. Oh, um, yes. Okay. They're just a really cool species. They're really elusive, really hard to study. I think they're a thing that would be a, a decent use of the dogs. Mm-hmm. Um 
yeah, I don't know. I'm sure our executive director and some other people have some other uh, dreams. And there's even a couple, you know, we're constantly writing grants and constantly proposing stuff. So mm. who knows, maybe something that is going to become a reality. Um, but I mean, the big dream that the organization has been working on um, is we just bought a facility. Oh, that's great. Um, so yeah, now we have we have 45 acres just outside of Missoula, Montana, where we can host training seminars and people can come and we'll um, we're going to offer training classes and, you know, the dogs can vacation there. So, you know, like when I'm traveling, I'm going to a conference this coming year. And instead of having to board my dog or pay a friend to watch him, I can leave him at the facility with our caretaker. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he goes there for work every day. So it's like, yeah, you know, nothing changes for him. So that's I mean, that's it's not as uh, exciting, but for us, you know, having this facility um, and not having to do all of our training, you know, out of friends' garages is a really big deal. Absolutely. That's amazing. And will you come back on the show? I know you're going to get to Africa. So will you come back on in the future and update us with your projects? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I'll let you know when I get to go to Tanzania. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Animals to the Max podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends and family. Also, if you haven't already, hit the subscribe button. It really helps me out. As always, if you have any guest suggestions, if you want to email me personally, head on over to CorbinMaxi.com. And if you haven't already, check out our social channels. You can follow me at CorbinMaxi on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We'll talk to you next time.